A reading from the book of Isaiah. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of mortals. So he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them, they shall see. And that which they had not heard, they shall contemplate. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. Then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered, You say so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. But they were insistent and said, 
He stirs up the people by teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee where he began, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him off to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had been wanting to see him for a long time because he had heard about him and was hoping to see him perform some sign. He questioned him at some length, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Even Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then he put an elegant robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. That same day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate then called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was perverting the people, and here I have examined him in your presence and have not found this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death. I will therefore have him flogged and released him. Then they all shouted out together, Away with this fellow! Release Barabbas for us! This was a man who had been put in prison for an insurrection that had taken place in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no ground for the sentence of death. I will therefore have him flogged and then release him. But they kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate gave his verdict that their demand should be granted. He released the man they asked for, the one who had been put in prison for insurrection and murder, and he hand Jesus over as they wished. As they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and they laid the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A great number of the people followed him, and among them were women who were beating their breasts and wailing for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are surely coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, 
coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. As you walk along the dusty road, you're surrounded by others who are either leaving the place you're headed to or heading there along with you. Some of them perhaps for similar reasons, perhaps not. But your mind isn't on them. You're focused on the lump in your throat, the recognition of your shortcomings, that you've not loved the people around you well. Your anger has flown out of you without you even recognizing it until you see the eyes of the person you've turned on go just a little bit darker. You've been so obsessed by your neighbor's success that you've lost all sense of joy and gratitude at the food on your own table, the clothes on your back. You've allowed bitterness to take root, and it feels like you can't even begin to turn over the sun-baked earth of your heart to undo it. As you walk, you 
press the leash into your wrist until it leaves a mark. You can smell your destination now. The smoke. The strange mixture of grilled meat and iron-rich blood and the sweetness of the frankincense. And now you can hear it. The familiar intoning of the priest, the splashing of water, the crackling of the bonfire and the bleeding of the lambs. And you look back at the lamb on your leash as it plods along, and you're almost hoping for a sign of recognition, but there is none. Its eyes say nothing at all. It has no idea why it is being brought here. It feels nothing of the conflict and sorrow in your heart. This lamb on your leash, it's not rational. There's no way of explaining or reasoning with it to bring understanding. There's no way of helping it anticipate that in a moment you will hold its head in your hands as the priest brings a knife to its neck. That in a moment its blood will splatter your sandals, speckling your feet and legs with its lifeblood. You begin to realize that in your lack of love, you have attempted to take the world away from God, to be self-possessed. And in so doing, you have found yourself living in a far-off place, disconnected from the God who gave your life to you. And here in the life of this lamb, you are bringing it back to God, and you realize that it's not even really the lamb that is Korban. It's you. Korban isn't a sacrifice or a debt or even really a gift. It means to draw near, and you are the one drawing near, drawing back your life to the source of life and offering it up. This is no generosity on your part, and the word necessity doesn't really fit. It's just the only thing to be done. Your parents before you and their parents before them, all the way back to the beginning, you've all been disintegrating, a mess of tears and tatters, and your life has been unspooled, unable to be pulled through the beautiful divine tapestry like it was designed to. Your failure to love has enslaved you to death. And even now, as you lead your lamb into the tabernacle courtyard, you check again for any recognition in its dark eyes, any knowledge of what any of this means. You are gripped with humility as you enter and a mixture of fear and love, or at least a desire to love, to learn to love. But will this keep your feet from slipping into shale? The place of the disembodied dead? This evening we are entering into a mystery that demands our silence, first and foremost. But it is a mystery that for many of us has become familiar, or at least there's a faux familiarity, such that we can read right past these things and not really capture them. 
The poem that you heard read is our Old Testament lesson from the prophet Isaiah, which has for centuries been understood as a poetic and theological reflection on the coming Messiah, and his work on behalf of humanity is rich. And like most good poetry, it is difficult and would require a lifetime of study to even begin to scratch the surface and suss out. And this poem in Isaiah 53 also assumes a visceral familiarity with the practice of sacrifice, the blood, the fire, the water, the incense. If we had grown up in the temple system, as we read this section of Isaiah, we would be able to smell it and hear it and taste it. Isaiah's imagery in this poem suggests both a division and a unity because there is the human community gathered all together in his poem, sick and sinful through and through. And all of us, in a sense, are standing afar off from God's suffering servant. We barely consider him human. He's been so marred by violent torture. We turn away from his ugliness, assuming that he has nothing to offer us. And though we turn our faces away in shock and disgust, though we attempt to keep a safe distance from one so bruised and ugly, he in his own turn identifies with us. He comes to us. The great irony, of course, is that while we stand far off from him and while he draws near unto us, becoming like us in every way, the chasm that still exists between him and us is staggering, for he was made like us in every way and yet was without sin. Which means there is no sacrifice needed on his behalf. Death being the wages of sin, he need not die, ever. Jesus Christ is the righteous one, the only righteous one, and every moment of his incarnate life was a moment of pure and total love, love for others, love for the whole of the created world, love for his Father. He loved with a love that required nothing in return, no strings attached, no selfish ambition, no cutting down others in anger or lust, no bitterness toward those with an easier life. The early church understood the process of salvation as one in which human beings were set free from their captivity to death so that they might attain eternal life in order to eternally grow in their knowledge and love of God, being brought more and more fully into his life. And some of the church fathers actually taught that even if Adam and Eve had not sinned in the garden, God would still have become incarnate and dwelt among us so that we might become by grace what he is by nature, that we could participate in his life because he participated in ours. Of course, we know the world which God created is a world where human freedom is not an illusion. We were made free to love or not love, and we have all made our choice. 
we are to understand what it means for Christ, the righteous one, to offer himself up as a sacrifice for sin, we need to go back to first things. The very first thing is that the world was created good and very good as an expression of God's beauty and joy and glory and love, and human beings were the jewel of God's creation made in his image and given dominion over his creation to priest it, to care for it, to love it, and offer it back to him in joyful thanksgiving. And in choosing not to do this, we must be clear, humanity has not added to itself. Sin is not extra. Sin is a parasite. As one theologian put it, we may say sinful humanity is not fully and properly humanity. Sin is a degradation or a reduction. This is crucial. There is no such thing as a sin nature. Sin is not natural. It is alien to God's creation. It is lack. It is emptiness. It is death. If the sin nature was a thing that existed, then Christ taking on humanity would either have to be sinful or not really human, right? The Bible does not use the term sin nature. Some of our translations, unfortunately, throw it in there. But this is crucial in part because we must excise from our minds the idea that Jesus' sinlessness is a lack of something. Au contraire, mon frère, it is us sinners who are lacking. Jesus is more fully human than any other human being who has ever lived. The rest of us exist in degradation and lack, not him. Likewise, we must get clear that the chastisement our sin requires, a chastisement declared to us in such brutal detail in Isaiah 53, is not the same as punitive punishment meant to inflict pain for the sake of pain. We have got to get clear in our minds who the enemies of God really are. When Paul says that we are at enmity with God, he is talking about the fallen world. He's talking about the imprisonment that humanity has made for itself. If God's enemies are his creation, fallen as it is, and rebellious humanity, the solution is really pretty simple. God will gain victory over his enemies by destroying all that he has made. It's over. But the world and humanity are not God's enemies, and destruction is not victory in the divine economy. Sin itself is destructive, degradative, and reductive, and it is sin and the full flower of sin, death, that are God's enemies. And in Jesus Christ, both of them are destroyed forever. In going to the cross as the Lamb of God, Jesus reveals death to be impotent and empty. And my point about circling back to the sacrificial lamb and the tabernacle worship is that animals are not rational. Not once did they look their owner in the eye and say, I've got this. Let me take the consequences of your sin for you. That never happened. 
Likewise, no criminal ever had such an opportunity, for any criminal who has died has died as a result of their own sinfulness. Death is the paycheck of sin, and we are all criminals now. But Jesus, as the righteous one, is, I say again, without sin. Without sin. He is fully human and fully God. And as God, he is incorruptible. Therefore, the church is taught, he took to himself a body so that he might enter into death in order to destroy it. If death is the paycheck for sin, it became devastatingly overdrawn by attempting to swallow a sinless victim. And this is the key difference between Jesus the Lamb and all humans ever and all the sacrificial sheep and goats. Jesus alone willfully chose to die. He is the only person in the world who willfully chose to die. He is both the victim and the priest, the only being ever to be offered up and to offer himself up in one and the same act. And he does it so that his world, the world that came into being through him and is held in being by him, might be set free from the darkness and despair of death that his image might be restored fully in humanity, that we might be regathered out of our fractured state, rebuilt out of our skeletal existence, fed by his own body and blood, and made into new, full human beings, the very icons of God. As we enter into Holy Week, we do so with sorrow over our sin with horror over the suffering of the Son of Man, the Lamb of Righteousness, who offered himself as a sin offering. But we do so looking toward the horizon of Easter, recognizing that in Christ, his enemies have been put to flight. Here's a hymn that is sung on Holy Saturday, the day that the church tells us Christ went and harrowed hell. Today, hell cries out groaning. I should not have accepted the man born of Mary. He came and destroyed my power. He shattered the gates of brass. As God, he raised the souls that I had held captive. Glory to thy cross, and resurrection, O Lord. Today, hell cries out, groaning, My dominion has been shattered. I received a dead man as one of the dead, but against him I could not prevail. From eternity I had ruled the dead, but behold, he raised all. Because of him do I perish. Glory to thy cross and resurrection, O Lord. Today, hell cries out, groaning. My power has been trampled upon. The shepherd is crucified and Adam is raised. I have been deprived of those whom I ruled. Those whom I swallowed in my strength, I have given up. 
He who was crucified has emptied the tombs. The power of death has been vanquished. Glory to thy cross and resurrection, O Lord. 